Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is almost midday in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States on February the 22nd, 2022. San Francisco, of course, being the home of big tech. Keene isn't quite the home of big tech. It was. It would be nice, I guess, if it was. But we do do. We have had a number of shows about the impact of technology on society recently. Uh, over the weekend, I talked to the London-based writer Jamie Suskin about how digital technology is radically transforming our politics and our democracy. That's a permanent, perpetual theme, of course, on the show and in society broadly. We've also had a lot of shows with venture capitalists uh, on uh, the change in economics and value in the digital world. The Union Square Venture partner, Albert Wenger, was on the show recently. And also my old friend, Christopher Schroeder, on how cryptocurrency Web3 are resulting in what Chris calls a global unleashing. Uh, certainly crypto and Web3 and blockchain are dramatically changing the world. Uh, my old friend Don Tapscott was on the show a year or two ago. He is Mr. Blockchain these days, and he believes that even the pandemic world will be transformed by blockchain technology. I don't actually see it yet, although Don tends to be right in the long term. Uh, we've done some shows on crypto specifically. We had the writer Ethan Lau on um, the Bitcoin boom. And we even had a show on uh, uh, Ethereum uh, with the uh, crypto journalist Camilla Russo, uh, who did, uh, who, who, who's written a book uh, also on uh, blockchain, crypto and the future of the Internet. And today we're back uh, with crypto and its impact on the world. Uh, my guest today is Laura Shin. Uh, she has a new book out today, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency uh, Craze. And I'm thrilled that uh, Laura is joining us from her home in Brooklyn. Uh, Laura, congratulations on the book. Thank you. So, Laura, what are you saying that Ethan Lau and Camilla Russo and Don Tapscott and all the other writers on crypto and Ethereum and Bitcoin aren't telling us. What's uh, unique about your new book? So my book is a narrative nonfiction book. So it's told like a story and it tells what happened to create the 2017 initial coin offering craze. And because Ethereum was the main platform on which that all happened, the majority of the book really is just a recounting of the Ethereum story. And it's only at the end, once the initial coin offering craze takes off, that then it branches out into other storylines. But I would say three quarters of the book really is a history of Ethereum. So Laura, our audience, I'm afraid, is not always as high tech as you, you're certainly comfortable and familiar with. You're a, you're a crypto and an Ethereum expert, but a lot of people are going to be scratching their heads and saying, what is Ethereum? What, is, that, um, is that a currency? 
How does it relate to blockchain and to Bitcoin? How would you explain Ethereum in the context of both blockchain and other cryptocurrencies? So Ethereum is what's called a smart contract platform, which means that the purpose of it is a little bit different from some of the others. And to explain this, I can go back to the beginning when the creator Vitalik Buterin conceived of Ethereum. And at that time, Vitalik was a journalist for Bitcoin Magazine. He was someone who had been engaging with that asset and that technology for a while, actually, traveling around the world and meeting with different Bitcoin communities across the globe. And he noticed that a lot of new blockchains were being created. And the way they were being created was to add features onto something like a Bitcoin, which was initially created for payments. The subtitle of the of the Bitcoin white paper is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And so the Bitcoin network really is for payments. And his idea when he was seeing that everyone was just adding features onto a blockchain for payments is he thought, why can't it be more like an app store, uh, you know, in your in your phone where you could download a cooking app or a photo app or a finance app or whatever it might be? And why couldn't it be that you would have a blockchain that would enable, enable people to kind of upload decentralized applications? Because the key development with Bitcoin was that it was decentralized. And so his conception was then to center this blockchain around a programming language so that way any developer could have any idea and use their own creativity to come up with decentralized applications. And so that's how Ethereum distinguished itself from the beginning and kind of took a different niche from a blockchain like Bitcoin. So the, the two, again, and I'm not even sure if these are the correct words, the two cryptocurrencies that most people will have heard of are Bitcoin and Ethereum. You write about Ethereum. Is Bitcoin more like a traditional currency, a, a sort of a, a almost like a, a, a speculative currency, whereas Ethereum is a platform, an operating system for cryptocurrency? I would say that Bitcoin is more like digital gold. I don't know if I would say it's more like a currency, at least not yet. There is definitely potential over time for it to evolve into that. You know, I, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but a very small percentage of the world has actually bought Bitcoin at this moment. And in order for something to be used really as a currency, you probably need wider adoption. But a lot of people now are using Bitcoin like digital gold. You've probably heard people talk about some of their reasons for buying it are because they perceive it to be a safe haven asset. They view the monetary policy of Bitcoin to be a strong one. And by monetary policy, what I mean is the fact that the supply of Bitcoins will never be greater than 21 million. And so compared to many fiat currencies or government issued currencies, um, that is something different, something that sets it apart. And like I said earlier, to them, makes it seem like a digital gold. Uh, like gold, it fluctuates radically. Today, uh, Bitcoin is down. It's slipped because of the Ukrainian uh, tensions. Uh, CNN Business talks about Bitcoin plunging. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Is Ethereum as vulnerable to these ups and downs in prices as, as Bitcoin? Is it as, as much a, a speculative game for uh, many of the players? You, you, your subtitle is 
idealism, greed, lies, and the making of the first big cryptocurrency craze. Do you see Ethereum as that first craze, more of a craze than Bitcoin? So the craze in the title is the initial coin offering craze in 2017. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that was a period when people were fundraising to launch new coins. And what they would do is they would say, hey, we have this plan for this new coin. Here's a white paper outlining what our proposal is. And then they would say, you can send us your Bitcoin and Ether. And there would be some kind of rate, you know, like uh, for every Ether, let's say you would get a thousand of the new coins that they were launching or whatever it might be. And so people were doing that thinking, oh, if I get these coins early at this low price, then as the price goes up, I will 10x or 100x my investment. And so that's really the craze that's discussed there. But in terms of your question about the volatility of Ethereum, I mean, certainly the whole crypto asset space is quite volatile because it's so new. It's so young. There is so little global adoption. And so when you have this market that is relatively small, I mean, granted, it's big considering that it's so young and that it really just launched with some anonymous person creating Bitcoin and that, you know, it was like decentralized. So what it, what Bitcoin and crypto in general have achieved is really incredible in this short period, but well, still. Achieved, uh, but, but, but in terms of the broader economy, we've done many shows on the responsibility or irresponsibility of the, the federal reserve board, for example, we had Christopher Leonard on the show talking who's written a, a very important and interesting book, which is incredibly critical of quantitative easing. What kind of impact has crypto and particularly Ethereum had on the broader economy? Is there any, or is this just a cult for insiders? Oh, certainly there has been a major impact. I already see crypto influencing global politics. Um, you know, I don't know if you have followed what's been going on with the central bank digital currency that China issued. And then you have all of these other central banks that have been saying that they've at least been exploring issuing their own central bank digital currency. And on top of that, you know, the the president has a working group on things like stable coins because they recognize, oh, this is a digital version of the U.S. dollar. Of course, it's not issued by the U.S. government. It's issued by these other private companies. And they're, you know, having congressional hearings about these things. So definitely uh, there has congressional hearings about a lot of things, Laura. I'm not sure if you're particularly convincing on that front. Uh, I mean, El Salvador apparently has embraced digital currency, but that hasn't had much of an impact on the global economy. And when the Chinese are interested, it's not as a peer-to-peer -peer distributed platform. It's one which the government controls. Isn't that fair? Yeah. And they're probably using it to surveil their population. So <laughs> isn't that the opposite, essentially, of what Ethereum or Bitcoin or any of these other P2P currencies are supposed to do to decentralize, to democratize yeah. finance? Yeah, so the Chinese government is definitely not doing what Ethereum is trying to do. <laughs> but perhaps we might uh, take a step back and, and, and talk about um, decentralized autonomous organizations as well, because would it be fair to say that Ethereum was perhaps a, a model, almost a pioneer of DAOs? Oh, certainly, definitely. And I don't know if you... No. So today I came out with huge news about the original DAO that was created on Ethereum, which in short order was hacked. 31% uh, of all the Ether in it was siphoned out. And 
Why, the, well, I, I don't mean to be critical, Laura, but why is that huge news? So the person who committed that, it was a mystery who did did that hack for six years. And this was the only existential crisis in Ethereum's history. It prompted Ethereum to do what was called a hard fork or, or is called a hard fork in which it basically made a non-backwards compatible change. And because people, not everybody agreed that they should do this, it ran the risk of creating a second blockchain that shared the history with Ethereum up until that point and essentially created a competing Ether currency. And that is exactly what happened. And that's why now we have Ethereum Classic plus ETH Ethereum. And people, you know, have always said that that creates a risk of, you know, basically creating confusion in the market, brand dilution, et cetera. And um, definitely that uh, in the future kind of informed future decisions when the Ethereum community again faced decisions around potentially doing an, a, a other hard forks for other situations and decided against because they, you know, had been burned by uh, what happened at the time of the DAO. But this, per this uh, you know, mystery about who did the DAO attack was definitely the biggest who done it in crypto and it has been ever since and so revealing um strong evidence for who was behind that today was major news yeah i mean it's major news maybe for people inside crypto but i think people who who aren't and people ordinary are, are, are most of our viewers who are kind of intrigued with this but interested in politics and tech and economics they're more intrigued by this idea of a decentralized autonomous organization that might become the architecture for the new economy. Is this significant? What exactly is a decentralized autonomous organization? What does it mean? I think DAOs are hugely significant. I, one could argue that Bitcoin is the first DAO because if you look at how it launched without any particular person in charge and grew to now become, you know, at times, I don't know if literally right now the market cap is over $1 trillion, but um, at times it has achieved that, which is something only the biggest and most successful companies in the world have done. And it's done that without a CEO, without a C-suite, without, you know, hiring workers to kind of like fulfill their objectives. And so, I mean, that's just incredible. So, and, so, so again, to explain it, um, Laura, a, a DAO is an organization which is all edge, which has no center, which has no hierarchy, no control, no one's determining its policy, uh, but everyone's contributing to its value. Is that fair? And, and this is essentially what a, a blockchain-driven currency is like, or, or platform like Ethereum. Yeah, and typically the the token or the coin at the center of it has certain incentives built in to get people on that network to provide services. So for instance, the way that the Bitcoin software was designed, it incentivizes people to provide security to the Bitcoin network to make it difficult to hack. As I said, the subtitle of your book is Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. It kind of reminds me of that subtitle um, of, uh, of a book uh, written um, uh, in, um, in, uh, in, in 2003, Dot Con by John Cassidy. Um, what, 
what would you, how would you compare the dot-com boom of the 1990s, which resulted in a huge crash, you might call it the first big internet craze, and today's crypto craze? Are they equivalent in some ways? Yeah, they're very similar, where there's an initial speculative mania that uh, brings a lot of money into that particular industry or technology. And a great book to read about this, because this actually happens repeatedly throughout history, whenever new technologies get developed, is called um, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez. Yes, yeah, and an she lays. Book. I, I know yeah. Carlotta. It, it is an excellent book. Yeah, and she lays out a really good um, case for how these happen. And so both the initial coin offering craze and the um, dot-com boom kind of brought a lot of money into the space for very speculative projects. And, you know, out of that, probably only some fraction will survive, uh, but they will go on to be very successful and in general kind of build this industry. And then as the technology matures, then in, instead of kind of these more speculative things that are being built, they will be actual products and services that people use and the technology will become integrated into society. So let's compare specifically uh, the, the dot-com dot boom and and today's crypto. When uh, when Cassidy wrote um, .com uh, 2003, Google had just gone public. Facebook didn't exist as a company. Twitter didn't exist. Uh, YouTube barely existed. What companies today would you think can survive? Uh, as 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 Carlotta Perez suggests. Um, you know, in these booms, most companies disappear, but the infrastructure is built and ultimately it's meaningful. Do you think Ethereum or Bitcoin is more likely to become the dominant platform or player in a crypto world of the the future, maybe in 10 or 15 years? So, so just to, um, you know, kind of... Uh define a little bit more carefully um, because you were saying, I think companies or something. So, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum are not companies, but right, um, yeah, that's a good point. So these yeah. are platforms, these are, or they're DAOs, they're different ways of doing business. Yeah. They're blockchains or, or yeah, crypto networks, people often call them. And uh, in my opinion, Bitcoin and Ethereum are quite different. They've taken different niches, as I mentioned earlier about Bitcoin being more like digital gold or the network itself being more for payments and Ethereum being kind of more of this smart contract platform for decentralized applications. And the asset there, Ether or ETH, is um, used more as gas on the network. It's paying for the computation that people conduct with their transactions. So they're really, frankly, in my opinion, very different assets if you, you know, really dig in and understand them. And so I don't necessarily see that one will kind of displace the other because they're just different in my opinion. What does they can... replace? What does it challenge? Is it banks? Is it current digital platforms like PayPal or Square? Is it um, exchange platforms like Coinbase? Who should be most fearful of Ethereum? I, I guess, I mean, so because Ethereum is so open ended and and it enables decentralized applications of any kind, there's a variety of different industries, frankly, that it could threaten. But one of them probably is 
things like banks and financial institutions simply because one of the major trends on Ethereum is something called decentralized finance. And there's a whole series of apps that have been built in a decentralized way, but provide things like lending and borrowing and um, exchange type services. So there's definitely actually that would that would maybe be an early one simply because that trend has already taken off. Jamie Diamond has thrown considerable amount of money, many billions for his bank in, in, into crypto. Um, all these digital payment platforms are now investing significantly in, in crypto. Jack Dorsey changed the name of his company from Square to Block, PayPal, and so on and so forth. Uh, which of those do you think can most effectively make the transition to the crypto economy? Can the traditional banks, can the current digital fintech platforms? I personally feel that the crypto native companies are going to do the best. And already we're seeing Coinbase far and away has, you know, the greatest market share in terms of crypto users in the US. So, you know, even though um, something like Square or Robinhood has or PayPal has that head start just with in terms of the size of its user base, Coinbase has already, you know, surpassed them in terms of the Coinbase number of users. Is, um... Coinbase is an exchange platform working on traditional um, grounds. It's not a Web3 company, but it, it enables the exchange of crypto. Is that fair? So it's not really a, a revolutionary, a fully revolutionary company. No. However, that we're seeing that right now in 2020 when there's been all this other development. But at the time that Coinbase was launched, it was groundbreaking for what it was, because at that time, there were no really good and safe on ramps into the crypto ecosystem from the banking system. And because it became that secure and trusted and um, just very user friendly platform for that, that allowed it to take that market share. And granted, yes, it's more like a fin, <clears throat> excuse me, more like a fintech company. It's not so much like a true crypto native company, but you can already see that they are pivoting now, uh, or I don't know if pivoting this world, but they're expanding is, is, is their services. It's a old-fashioned word now, Laura, in Silicon Valley. There must be a <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's not accurate. There must be a yeah. word for pivoting. I don't know. Yeah, they're... That. yeah. Let, let's also move on to another term that gets used a lot, and the, sort of entering common parlance, but not everyone understands, a non-fungible token, the NFTs. Is this the core... Um, I guess the, the operating system of platforms like Ethereum in financial terms and NFT, explain what that is. So an NFT is a type of asset and uh, it started on Ethereum. I, well, that's not true, sorry. It started on Bitcoin, but then the first ones to really take off were on Ethereum. But essentially, if you think about how, let's just start with Bitcoin, how Bitcoins are fungible with each other. People wouldn't necessarily say, I would prefer that Bitcoin over that one. An NFT is just a digital object that is not fungible, meaning that it's unique. And you can create series of NFTs, for instance, like a class of tickets where there's only 100 of them, and then they're sort of interchangeable within that class. And so there are types of NFTs where they can be fungible just with each other. But other than that, that's what makes an NFT different from something like a crypto. Laura, uh, looking uh, on the internet today, I read on Entrepreneur Magazine that Web 3.0 is coming. 
I think when they call it Web 3.0, it means they don't know what they're talking about because it's not Web 3.0, it's Web 3, at least for insiders. Of course, it's coming, but the question is when and how. Um, Tim O'Reilly wrote a really interesting piece recently, uh, and O'Reilly knows what he's talking about. He's an old friend of mine. He, he essentially invented the Web 2.0 term 17 years ago. He said it's still too early to get excited about Web 3. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I guess I would disagree because I'm already seeing definitely really interesting things going on in that world. Well, I don't think you would deny that, but too early in the sense of really profoundly changing the architecture of our economy, affecting real people rather than just insiders. What, what would you point to which would well, convince O'Reilly that Web3 is really here now, the crypto world that you know so well? Well, I feel that that really then is a question of scale. So, you know, if um, certain a certain amount of scale is what you're looking for, then yeah, probably not. But I mean, if you look at simply things like Constitution DAO, which really attracted a lot of attention. I mean, just within the span of a week, they gathered what was about $50 million uh, in order to try to participate in this Sotheby's auction to win a copy of the U.S. Constitution. And I already know, I mean, it's spawned a whole new kind of, it's just sparked a lot of creativity amongst people interested in doing things with DAOs. And so already there's just a lot of stuff happening, um, whether or not any there's anything, you know, at a certain size. I mean, it's like I said earlier, only a small percentage of the people in the world even own Bitcoin. So we're early in everything. It gets, it, you're always, we're always early in everything out here, Laura, as you know, and then it's too late when it's not too early. <laughs> um, uh, O'Reilly writes about uh, decentralization versus centralization as the core element in Web3. What I don't understand, though, is that huge amount of money is pouring in from centralized organizations like Andreessen Horowitz, um, Mark Andreessen's venture capital firm, for example, the most powerful in Silicon Valley. There was a, a recent spat between Jack Dorsey of Square, formerly of, uh, of sorry, of Block, formerly of Twitter, and Andreessen on the meaning of Web3. How can Web3 retain its central, uh, decentralized, radical, um, disruptive nature if, if it's controlled by organizations in financial terms like Andreessen Horowitz? Is there a contradiction there? Or can traditionally centralized venture capital firms um, drive the Web3 revolution? This is something that I question a lot of the founders about on my show, because uh, which uh, is a podcast I do called Unchained, because it is true that in a lot of these DAOs or in some of these different um, new NFT social groups, such as Friends with Benefits, that somehow these VCs are investing in them. Um, and this debate about uh, what now is, you know, this uh, debate over Web3, but previously has been under different iterations. One was uh, VC coins versus um, fair launch coins, they were called. And so this is something that the crypto community debates all the time. As a journalist, I actually don't really have much of an opinion. I just try to cover both things. What I would say, though, is whether or not the VC coins fail over time because of this issue, certainly now many of them 
are succeeding and they have a lot of traction. And so, um, you know, I always make sure to question those people about that. But um, I, at the moment, I wouldn't say that having VC invo involvement is dooming those coins to failure. If you want to know more about the remarkable group of people driving the crypto revolution, I think um, Laura Shin's new book out today, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is a wonderful read. I have one final question for you, Laura. Um, we always hear about this Vitalik um, uh, Buterin, the founders, one of the co-founders of Ethereum. But why don't we hear more about some of the other founders, like Gavin Wood, for example, who seems to be in some ways more influential. Why is Buterin most associated with Ethereum? So Vitalik Buterin is the creator of Ethereum. He got these other co-founders when he tried to build Ethereum, but he himself was the one who conceived it and wrote the white paper, and it was his idea. Um, Gavin was a very key developer at that time. He maybe could even be called the main architect because since Vitalik was really more kind of the research and the vision, um, there needed to be actual coders who would just build Ethereum. And I think Gavin was one of those who took the lead on that. Another one is somebody named Jeffrey Vilka. And people can read in my book about how those two personalities between Gavin and Jeff influenced the early development of Ethereum because they were really sort of more hands-on and Vitalik had more of that research role and still does. Well, I hope you want to learn more about the remarkable cast of characters involved in Ethereum. You need to read uh, Laura Shin's new book out today, The Cryptopians. Um, you can read about Buterin, Wood, and, and all the rest of them. Um, Laura, what else should people be reading these days in a strange time? It always seems to be a strange moment in history. I know you're in Brooklyn. I'm in San Francisco. What else are you reading? Well... Uh, I, during the course of working my book, did not get to read very much. And so a couple of books that I want to be sure to read right away are Educated by Tara Westover and The Lying Lives, or The Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante. But one other book that I highly recommend to anybody at any time, because this is definitely far and away my favorite book, is called Sea Biscuit by Laura Hillenbrand. And it's definitely one of the biggest bestsellers of all time. So hopefully people have already read it, I would imagine so. Um, but it's really amazing. I never, like, I'm just not even interested in horses or betting or anything like that. And this story just completely enthralled me. Good suggestions, Laura. Educated is another big hit. I'd love to get actually um, the author of Educated on the show. Uh, finally, Laura, the uh, author of the new book, Cryptopians. Uh, I think this is a question really suited to you. Uh, Laura, Laura Shin, who, who, who runs the world? Who's in charge? I would say people who are not afraid to speak their truth. <laughs>